Welcome to episode 10 of Contain This, brought to you by the Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security. I'm your host, Adam Craig. Today on the show, we have Elizabeth Eero and Michelle Rumsey. Elizabeth, a Cook Islander, is the Chief Nurse at the World Health Organization in Geneva. Prior to joining the WHO, she served as the Secretary of Health in the Cook Islands, and before that was the country's Chief Nurse. In these roles, she spearheaded health system reform with a focus on planning and workforce development. Nursing is in Elizabeth's blood. In this episode, she speaks passionately about the role nurses from across the globe are playing under increasingly stressful conditions to ensure health systems continue to function and efforts to achieve health security for all are achieved. Michelle also started her career in nursing. She took this experience to the global stage and now, as an academic, advises on international health care and policy in the areas of human resources for health, health system strengthening, capacity development, stakeholder participation and regulation. Michelle is the director of the WHO Collaborating Centre for Nursing, Midwifery and Health Development, based at UTS. The centre is the only one of its kind in the South Pacific. Under Michelle's leadership, the centre has carried out 50 projects in 25 countries. She was awarded the UTS Human Rights Award in 2014 for her work in the South Pacific. This episode celebrates 2020, the International Year of Nurses and Midwives. Elizabeth and Michelle reflect on what this year means to the nursing profession. They talk about the challenges in being a nurse during a pandemic and propose actions that ought to be taken to address issues as broad as chronic workforce shortages, achieving universal health coverage, gender inequity, and the impacts of power imbalances in nursing and healthcare more broadly. I'm your host, Adam Craig. Welcome to Contain This. Michelle, Elizabeth, thanks for making time to speak with me. It's good, good to be online. No, very good to, to have this opportunity to talk. Thank you. You guys have known each other for quite a while now. Can you tell us about where you first met? Um, yeah, we've known each other a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, been a wonderful, uh, glorious relationship. Um, and I've just seen Elizabeth continue to climb the career ladder all the way to the top of WHO. And we quietly call her the, the global chief nurse, which I'm sure she worries about. <laughs> but we all love the fact that our colleague from the South Pacific is sitting at the top of WHO, keeping us all in order. Now, I, I, I think from my side, um, Adam, it's uh, been a great association um, and, and the friendship that's grown out of this uh, association with uh, Michelle, um, you know, when they first established the collaborating centre. Um, and, and so my, my engagement there kind of grew and it's been great to get her support along the way in terms of um, um, actually not just nursing, a whole variety of issues and support that she's provided uh, um, to me and to my nursing colleagues uh, in the Pacific and also especially in the Cook Islands. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just a, a, a lovely journey we've had. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful to have a Pacific Islander in such a high-profile position. This year is the International Year of Nurses and Midwives and WHO has released a report entitled The State of the World's Nursing. Elizabeth, what does naming this year the Year of the Nurse and Midwife mean to nurses and what does the report find? Hmm. Um, I think, first of all, I think the year uh, is a, a, a designated year by the World Health Assembly, uh, which, you know, is recognising the contribution 
that nurses and midwives uh, make to health and well-being uh, of the population that they look after. So it's a, a global population that they uh, uh, that they contribute to better health outcomes. Um, at the same time, and also 2020 is a is a year. It's in commemoration of the 200th anniversary of the birth of Florence Nightingale, who many consider to be the founder of modern nursing. Um, so a very, um, very significant designation uh, that kind of also offered uh, opportunity for a lot of nurses and midwives and leaders um, to really leverage that opportunity uh, to address the, 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 the nursing and midwifery shortage as well as the health workforce shortage. Um, it was also a year to really raise the profile, you know, raise the awareness of, of nurses and midwives and what they do. Um, so it was a really you know, exciting kind of designation or announcement um, so, of course, you know, within that announcement, we had um, identified, you know, that we were underway in developing um, the first ever state of the world's nursing report. Um, so we hadn't actually um, done any, any, we had not had any evidence or data on what uh, that looked like. So it was, uh, then it was kind of like, you know, having that report to um, to showcase uh what it meant for you know for, for nurses globally uh, to be launched in in the year of the nurse and the midwife uh, so you know it was to the report was to provide the data um, the evidence that was needed for by you know by nurses and nurse leaders uh, to you know to um, use to, to use within their their countries. Uh, to support them in their leveraging for, you know, for, for the policy changes um, that they needed to make uh, within their context. So I think it was a, you know, and that's, that's the purpose of the report, really. Um, and so we're finding this report has highlighted the, the well, a roadmap of, you know, what, what uh, countries can do uh, in terms of uh, uh, policy changes uh, using this data and the evidence that they now have. Uh, so I think that's kind of, you know, where we are with the, the year of the nurse and the state of the world's nursing report. Hmm. The report finds that an extra 6 million nurses are required to achieve universal health coverage by 2030. Why is there such a shortage, particularly in low and middle income countries? And what strategies are being implemented to close the gap? Um, we've been doing a lot of things, but as Elizabeth says, we've been lobbying WHO for three years to get this International Year of the Nurse and International Year of the Midwife. And I think, you know, nobody can underestimate the value of nurses and midwives in this current climate. So many of the amazing celebrations we had arranged have obviously put on hold and we're doing a variety of other things and luckily because of Elizabeth and our great relationship in the region we've done quite a lot of different webinars and discussions and I think this um, State of the World's Nursing Report is so important for us. We now know that 59% of the world's um, health workforce are nurses and in our region we've actually got 73% of that portion and in our region, 
globally, 95% of that health workforce are women. And in our region, it's 95%. And also in our region, we have 51% or under 35. And that's quite unique because many of our nurses are getting older in other countries, whereas in our region, we've got a very young workforce. And I think the report clearly says we need more support for leadership, more support for education, and more support for job security. And I think having those facts will really help us make those policy changes, as Liz says. Absolutely. Leadership, education, and job security. It's what we're all looking for, isn't it? Yeah. Let me flick to you now, Elizabeth, and ask, in your role as the Chief Nurse at WHO, what do you see as the priorities to ensure that we have an adequate nursing workforce? Well, I think I kind of like, you know, Looking from uh, you know this this global shortage and and why why it is I think we're, we're actually six million we need by twenty thirty um, we have to look at you know the the numbers that you know the supply we have to look at the education what are the you know what are the the, what the number of graduates coming out of uh, training uh, within countries and how many are coming out and actually get recruited for a job. Um, so this is, it's, you know, as Michelle said, it is a complex uh, issue, but I think if you look at the number that are actually entering the profession, um, some of the barriers to, to those um, around, you know, for the Pacific, it's about the, the location of where these nursing schools are um, because we know um, they're usually in urban cities. Um, so, you know, immediately for, for some of our Pacific Island countries, this means a, a relocation. Um, so we, we get that, that supply kind of um, breakdown immediately. And, of course, there's the, um, uh, the outflow as well. You know, the, the, the push factors come into play when, when, as nurses graduate from schools, the opportunities uh, to relocate elsewhere. Uh, causes, of course, this gap uh, within domestic uh, um, uh, situations. Um, so we have to, you know, there's all this, and it's, they, they might, we have to look at what are those, what are those reasons behind that? Why are they, you know, what is the, you know, the, 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 the pull factors from an international perspective? Um, and we have to look at the availability of, you know, like I said, better jobs, uh, better working conditions, better salaries, um, and better resources. Um, and so nurses will, Will, will will be pulled to 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 better working conditions, but you also have, like I said, you know, if you're graduating in this absence of job opportunities, um, that and, and poor working conditions and salary salaries and insecurities, um, you're going to have those factors kind of coming into play as well. Um, so I think you know it's not as uh, you know the the. The reasons of the, you know, when you ask about why there is such a shortage, it's not as uh, as simple as uh, as it may appear. So I think um, that's kind of my addition to, you know, totally support what Michelle is saying. Mm. Securing a workforce is always such a challenge, isn't it? And such an important part of a strong health system. In the Pacific and, and elsewhere, community health workers and village health workers play an important role. Could you talk a little bit about the role that these particular health workers play and how they work with the nursing workforce to deliver care? Um, 
Certainly. I, I think uh, community health workers, village health workers, traditional birth attendants, it doesn't matter who you talk about. I think I think the health sector is a very wide, broad church and it's, it's a very huge group of people. Civil society have a huge uh, part to play in health. So it's not about different groups of health workers, it's how we work together. And I think the biggest problem that we've always dealt with is regulation. So regulation is about protecting the public. And if nurses and doctors and many health professionals are regulated, and that's a safety net because it's set in legislation. And I think that's where the gap sometimes comes between unregulated and regulated health workers because that's the dynamic that we need to strengthen across the region and we need to build those um, dynamics to make sure that each individual health practitioner or health individual or village health worker knows what their scope of practice is and their competence is to be able to ensure we know where they fit in that big pipeline of health workers. So it's not about who's individual. And I think the other problem, and I know WHO did quite a lot of work on the UHD competences for community health workers, Liz. Yes. Um, no, I, I think uh, this was um, highly uh, promoted in the 2016 um, Health Assembly and through looking at diversity, when you look at the global WHO global strategy on human resources for health, the workforce 2030, um, you know, it, it looks at diversity in health workforce. And of course, um, last year we had the, you know, the launch of the you know the guidelines or the guidance document on community health workers um, and the programs and the and what that actually means for um, some countries uh, where there is a, a, a absolute uh, um, necessity to recruit um, to support the the health uh, professionals um, so I think that's uh, that's the they definitely in many countries uh, do have a, a need for uh, for this group of, of uh, uh, to support the health workforce professionals uh, for sure. Um, and and I think you know you're right. I think it is about you know what does that then mean in terms of uh, regulating the health workforce. And I think what we've seen during COVID nineteen is some of these being um, perhaps teased out in some communities where, you know, uh, contact tracers are being recruited. Um, you know, is this, is this an area where this carter uh, could definitely add value to the overall uh, health systems? Um, so I think, you know, it, it, uh, COVID-19 has definitely um, shone a light on, on, on health systems as a whole um, and, and health workforces. Uh, so it's not just about volunteerism. It's about how do you then take that to the next level? Um, and we do have, uh, as Michelle said, some guidance around uh, community health workers. You guys have both worked and advised in human resources for health. I'm interested in your perspectives and insights into how prepared the Pacific Island nursing workforce is for COVID-19. Um, I, I mean, I think for you, Michelle will probably get a better handle on the, the specificities of it. But I think from my perspective and what I see some of the challenges is, is actually probably very similar, if not more intense in terms of gradients, perhaps, as how that impacts nurses. It's an unprecedented situation. 
and therefore, you know, many health workers are impacted and communities are impacted. So how do you prepare for that response? And sometimes an already under-resourced health system. And on top of that, there are some geographical locations of islands and populations. So there are those challenges. I think what I I've found in the Pacific is that WHO in Fiji has actually led a team of donors and partners uh, like SPC in a joint incident management uh, where they are taking a, a very strategic approach to supporting these countries in terms of the resources that's needed, in terms of the, the training that's offered to nurses and to healthcare workers uh, in terms of the provision of PPE as well as testing and laboratory support. I think there's a whole lot of these elements that's been very well coordinated within the South Pacific. So I think there are challenges and nurses, I know, have taken the lead, I know, from my country uh, in terms of public health engagement. So there's been a real need to kind of have the information, the advocacy and communication tools to support the education of the general public in terms of, you know, um, hand hygiene, in terms of physical distancing, all that come into, into play. And so I think although they have it, not many countries, I think maybe have had a case, but they've needed to prepare to really mitigate that. And I think that's been a, a really key uh, element uh, in terms of processes for addressing COVID-19. So I think there's been some online training programs that's been made available. I know the Pacific Commission have also taken some lead in supporting countries, uh, as well as some of the partner, the key partners like DFAT and NAFAT in Kana supporting Pacific Island countries as well. You're right. It's a really great example of the different agencies coming together to support the Pacific Islands as a collective respond to COVID-19. Michelle, you've mentioned a few times that education underpins the development of the nursing workforce. I'm interested in what policy frameworks exist within which education can be delivered and sustained across the Pacific region, but more broadly across the Indo-Pacific. Well, I, I guess from our point of view, we just know nurses are crucial. Um, there's, there's no question that they're there for early detection. Um, they're there to stop, stop the spread of the disease and they're also, you know, really trusted in their communities and can make changes. So I think if they're not educated well enough and haven't had the support right from the beginning, um, we could actually cause more problems uh, in the long term. And I think that's always been our worry in the Pacific is that we have been looking with DFAT and others for a long time to build the educational quality of nursing education across the whole Pacific because every country has a slightly different flavour of education, slightly different length, whether it be a community health worker or a nursing aide. So I think long term we really want to build education facilities across the Pacific. And I think the biggest challenge our colleagues have had is sort of a little bit of misinformation, um, confusion and feeling really quite scared. Uh, we know in Samoa, in the Spanish flu, they lost a third of their, a fifth of their population. And so they're very, the Pacific Islanders are very, very aware of what could happen very quickly. There are very few critical care boards 
um, things that we're just used to in Australia and New Zealand and globally, they just don't have access to those things. There's been a few what we call safety stops in Papua New Guinea and other places where they've just put down tools and said, we haven't got PPE. We'd actually like some soap and sanitation. That has improved significantly over the last few months. And I think we can only just hold really firm and, and be really thankful that the Pacific understood the risks hugely and shut their borders really early. But now we've got to use this opportunity to build the nurses in the Pacific. We've got to really strive forward and make sure they're educated. All our research has shown that many of them have never had any formal continuing professional development since today than qualified. So I think this is the time to really start valuing our nurses and look at what we can do to make sure we're prepared because these public health emergencies are going to continue. Absolutely. Elizabeth, as WHO's chief nurse, you're obviously working with groups from all around the world. What can the Pacific learn from other regions? And similarly, what does the Pacific have to offer other regions in terms of nursing development? Um, Well, I think, first of all, collaboration, I think it's a key. Uh, And partnerships, uh, you know, whether that's in, in education or in practice, we can definitely learn from, from different models of, uh, of care um, that are uh, successful in one country that could possibly uh, be adapted um, within other countries. Um, so I think for me, there is a, a real need for, for opportunities to establish these, these relationships um, outside uh, of regions. Uh, and it could be a you know a south south kind of arrangement, but it could be a totally um, um, you know a high high income to low income kind of support systems that could kick in place. Um, I think for me, so that's that's the first kind of um, uh, suggestion I would kind of say to to look at to see what exists um, and what uh, what can be adapted. Um, but I think, if anything, what the Pacific are doing in some areas are actually a lesson that the rest of the world could uh, could uh, definitely use. I think some of the models of care that's been uh, provided within, I think it's in Tonga with the, um, you know, their nurse-led NCD clinics uh, and how, I mean, that's, I think that's a model that was supported by Australia initially. Um, that that's really kind of you know it's a, it's a, a very efficient uh, way of uh, of addressing uh, NCDs, um, and this is a model that could be replicated, and I think it is being replicated in the sense that you'll find advanced um, nurse practitioners training is is the model uh, really that uh, addresses primary healthcare with the. Um, you know, allowing them to practice to the full scope of their practice, uh, I think has been some of the key things. So I, I think it goes both ways. We definitely have a lot to offer as well to the rest of the world. I agree. Here in the Pacific, we have unique experiences and have lots of knowledge that others can learn from. We should never underestimate that. Michelle, your centre, the WHO Collaborating Centre for Nursing, Midwifery and Health Development, is the first of its kind in the region. How did it come about and what sort of work are you doing and supporting? I think we're really, really lucky and um, Liz can attest to this because the first meeting actually happened in the Cook Islands uh, with Liz, I think, as, as chief nurse at the time. 
where a group of uh, senior nurses came together and said that they wanted some support, really. And I think uh, they recognised at that time that the Pacific being very isolated uh, and having lots of similarities, but also being unique in their own right in each country. So they came to us and asked us if we'd be a collaborating centre. So um, I guess that was in 2004, so sort of like quite a few years later. Um, and we've been very lucky. So we have been Secretariat for the uh, Pacific Chief Nursing and Midwifery Alliance since then. And our terms of reference is quite broad. And nursing and midwifery are quite broad um, programs, if you like. So there's no point in being very tight. And I think even WHO has struggled with times because we've got such a broad spectrum but mainly we look at maternal and child health leadership human resources for health and some regulation and really that enables us to utilize the wonderful staff we have at UTS and, and other partners uh, across Australia and New Zealand mm -hmm. and work with all our chief nurses education support and regulation uh-huh it really sounds like you're working from the bottom up strengthening those building blocks of a, of a health system through the nursing workforce and looking at integration across the different components of the health system. Yeah. We, we certainly use an integrated approach in everything we do. Our integrated approach is looking at governance. So we've been fighting for many years to make sure there's a chief nurse in every country in the Pacific. And, and broader than that, the State of the World's Nursing Report has said we've got 27 chief nurses out of the 37 countries in the region. So we've got 10 more to go, Liz. <laughs> And um, we've got, we, we look at education, then we look at associations, because associations are really, really important to make sure that uh, there's continuing professional development for our nursing staff and they're supported. The associations support the health workforce. And then regulations. Regulation is really about protecting the public. So for us, it's that big, broad, integrated approach that we always sort of work through when we're doing any programs. Mm. Michelle, you talk about leadership and governance. Approximately 90% of the nurses in the nursing workforce are female, but few leadership positions are held by nurses or by women. What can be done to address the gender imbalance and what impact would addressing it have? I think that's another thing that's come out really, really clearly in the State of the World's Nursing Report, that we need a lot more support for leadership. Um, we're very lucky that we carried out a leadership program for many years at the Collaborating Centre in line with our regional partners. It was a very small program, but it was supported for many, many years. And that program has seen a marked improvement across the region of our colleagues. We've uh, been able to support many chief nurses. And out of our program, we actually have two health ministers now, so we're very excited. Um, but... DFAT stopped the funding for that. So it's really hard because DFAT do fund a lot of really brilliant things. But I think actually maintaining the momentum of this work is crucial. How do we maintain these small things? How do we maintain this leadership across the Pacific? And it's a bit, it's a bit like I was saying before. If our colleagues are invisible and not fighting locally um, for their own needs because they're so busy and they've got family it's really really hard to make sure this leadership's on the table i'm sure liz will talk about it more but we often talk about nurses being at the policy table how can we get more nurses at the policy table because if they're not at those policy tables in their ministries they can't help push this change and so it's enabling that change and certainly our leadership program showed a huge impact 
of confidence of our colleagues around the region. They suddenly understood how to move things forward in a project sense. It wasn't all about nursing. It was about really empowering them as individuals. Absolutely. I just add on to uh, Michelle's comment about the leadership programs that was, um, uh, um, you know, that was provided through uh, the Clavering Centre um, to Pacific Islanders. And, of course, I was uh, privy to some of my colleagues who have attended that. And I think, you know, uh, to see the trajectory of their growth uh, as a result of some of these leadership programs was, uh, you know, it's just amazing to see where they are today um, in terms of um, within the organisation, the leadership roles that are taken within the organisation. But I think for me, um, leadership definitely is the is the key. Uh, the report kind of highlights that as one of the you know the big recommendations. Um, but for me personally, it is about it. It, it cascades a lot of uh, uh, policy changes can cascade from actually having uh, the right people in the right places at the right time. Uh, to influence change. And I think this is about understanding not just the, the nursing uh, uh, agenda, but actually to understand the, the context of where you work and the, the policies and politics that happen within that context, I think, uh, are lessons that we are definitely imparting on a lot of our um, colleagues uh, across the world in terms of the, um, the government chief nurses and midwifery other nursing leaders uh, within countries. So I think that's that's really uh, quite critical to, to understand that, as Michelle said, you know, we've been kind of like trying to make this shift for quite some time. Um, and, and so there's a lot of stuff going on for nursing and midwifery right now in terms of, you know, the visibility that we are getting from the year of the nurse and the midwife from the, the Nursing Now campaign, uh, from the, the COVID-19 even. I think COVID-19 has definitely highlighted the value uh, that nurses are, uh, and midwives are contributing to healthcare. Um, so I think, you know, from a leadership perspective, we definitely need to have that voice at the decision-making table. I think we heard in some countries how you know, just having the nurse, you know, in the decision-making as part of the, the preparation of the response to COVID-19 actually has some positive uh, rollout uh, for the country in terms of how they, they, they address the, the situation. So I think uh, we have lessons that we can learn from. Um, so I think it's, um, we're going to see those changes. And I think, you know, the, the recent government chief nurse, the triad meeting government chief nurse and military officers, and leaders of uh, associations, um, you, you know, uh, they they are they are aware um, and they know where to get help from. Uh, as Michelle said, you know, the awareness uh, through the various programs that are being offered um, is making a difference. And the report says, you know, um, having that leadership actually makes a difference to the regulatory uh, processes. So. Um, I think that's that's important that we need to now use what we have, use the data and evidence, and influence uh, our, our politicians. Sure. Let me ask you about COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen has demonstrated how essential nurses are in combating pandemics, but also how difficult and sometimes risky the job is. Across the Indo Pacific region, approximately twelve thousand health workers have contracted COVID nineteen, and about two hundred have died. What drives nurses to keep turning up to work each day, given these risks? 
I think, you know, nurses has always been about an art and the sciences. Uh, and I think, you know, what you've seen is uh, some of the responses from nurses is because, uh, you know, they are passionate about what they do. They, they, are, uh, they want to continue to provide care. Um, they are trained to, to, to provide that care. Um, the key, though, is that they need to be protected while they deliver that care. Uh, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an element that, that I think uh, um, is important to, to capture within this conversation. But I think, you know, they, they continue to, to, because they know they can make a difference. Um, they are trained. They are educated. And they have compassion for what they do. I think it's, uh, and, and, and I think that's why they continue uh, to, 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 to go to, to work, uh, despite the, you know, understand that the risk of catching the infection and actually of death even uh, is, is, is there. Um, so I think, you know, as um, employers, uh, they have an obligation to make sure that um, the nurses are getting the resources mm. they need to do the jobs that they do. Mm. Does the compensation nurses receive adequately reflect the contribution that they're making? I, I think, you know, this is um, a conversation that actually, a pre-COVID conversation, not just a COVID conversation. <laughs> um, so I, you know, and it's uh, that there are differences within countries um, as to what that compensation is. Um, but I think, you know, you, you will find that I think where their work conditions uh, and salary are before COVID um, is, is very perhaps on the, um, you know, the negative side. Um, and so what, what that is, what they have done, though, I think what has come out in some of these uh, countries that have been really highly impacted by COVID is the recognition by heads of state, by ministers of health, of the value that nurses actually make during this COVID-19. So we need them to make those changes, to those, you know, uh, address those um, those statements that are made by, by heads of states to make sure that they correct those right now the correct the working conditions and the salary and the remuneration and the hazard compensations now um because i think that's going to be the key it's not about preparing for the next pandemic it's about actually getting it right Mm. anyway but i think it's about recognition and i think nurses if they're recognized have higher motivation and higher morale and that's always been recognized and it's not always the huge things Uh, If a hospital suddenly charges a nurse for car parking to come to work, the morale of those nurses is is terrible. So I think it's about the small and the large recognition, uh, especially during this time, that actually enables nurses to think their employer really recognises them. And I think with um, PPE and and support equipment for COVID-19, that was a huge one. They were saying, we're out there doing this amazing work and there's not enough equipment for us. What's going on? So I think it's that, you know, always about recognition Mm -hmm. and and nurses actually want to nurse. Mm. Michelle, you articulate so clearly the importance of recognition and how that's a motivating factor for turning up to work and giving it your all. 
some of the work I'm doing in the Solomon Islands at the moment with nurses around uh, early warning disease surveillance systems uh, and their motivation to participate in those systems has reflected what exactly what you're saying, that people uh, will contribute and are willing to contribute as long as they feel respected. To finish up the interview, can I ask you both for your reflections on what you see as the major lessons learnt from the COVID-19 experience so far and how they're going to help frame and shape global health security moving forward? Well, I think for me, um, you know, what COVID-19 has highlighted is the, the need for investment in health systems so they can provide the necessary health care um, and to also address not just the social but the gender uh, and racial uh, inequalities. That's what COVID-19 has highlighted. Um, I think some of the issues that were gaps pre-COVID has really been being amplified during the COVID. Um, I think, you know, you've had uh, nursing shortage, you've had uh, uh, nurses being, you know, violence against nurses and healthcare workers, you've had, you know, uh, nurses who've been um, stressed and burnt out because of uh, various reasons, shortages of staff and lack of, uh, you know, good working conditions. Um, that happened prior to COVID. Um, and COVID has just brought all of those elements out. Um, and then we've seen some of the, the negative impacts, of course, you know, with the violence and the stigma and discrimination um, against uh, nurses and healthcare workers. We've seen the, the mental distress, the issues that's impacted a, a lot of the, the, the nurses. Um, so I think, you know, the... Those, those are issues that needs to definitely be um, factored in in our uh, um, part of our recovery. Uh, so I, I think, uh, um, so overall for me, it's just, it is about um, for us as, as nurses and as midwives is to leveraging this uh, uh, situation, if you call it that, um, to make the gains for, for policy changes uh, within countries. Um, we really need to do that. Um, so, and this is an opportunity. And I think with the focus around the year of the nurse and the midwife also around, you know, being visible and being aware and, and, and informing our general public about um, what nurses do and what midwives do, I think is going to be a, a critical part of that recovery um, because it's not just a preparation for the next pandemic. It's actually getting it right, in, in, you know, for, for, for normal, uh, if you can call it normal, uh, circumstances. So I think for me that, that's some of the, the, the lessons, I think, that, that, that we've uh, learned from this, uh, from COVID-19. I think we've learned so much from this pandemic. Um, I feel quite emotional I mean, we were on a, um, a big global meeting with Liz um, last week, 600 nursing midwifery leaders. And I think the most traumatising thing was seeing some of our colleagues from um, associations, especially in Italy, absolutely exhausted and still working so hard to support the nurses in their countries. And yet at the same time, the public's so scared themselves 
that they're being abusive to the very health professionals who are trying to support them. So I think in some ways there's been a lot of humanity around this whole pandemic, a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding. And I think nursing certainly has been at the forefront. Um, people will never forget that nurses and midwives are there to look after them. And we've just got to keep remembering that. We've just got to actually not forget that. We've got to provide the leadership. We've got to provide the education and that moral support, recognise those nurses and midwives, because that's actually at the end of the day. Of course, they want monetary support and good equipment, but actually they just want to be recognised for the good job they're doing. Elizabeth Eero, Michelle Rumsey, thank you so much for making time to speak with me. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. It's been our pleasure. That was Elizabeth Eero, WHO's Chief Nurse, and Michelle Rumsey, Director of the WHO Collaborating Centre for Nursing, Midwifery and Health Development at UTS. We've heard what passion Elizabeth and Michelle both have for nursing, what challenges the profession faces, and how the COVID-19 situation is both challenging, but also providing opportunities for nurses. Nurses are the backbone of the health system. With 2020 the International Year of Nursing and Midwifery, it truly is a time to celebrate the contribution they are making. Our next episode airs in two weeks. In it, I speak with Associate Professor Leanne Robinson from the Burnett Institute and Dr Moses Lahman, the Director of the Papua New Guinea Institute for Medical Research, about drug-resistant malaria in the country and the effects the STRIVE project is having. Until then, you can engage with us through our social media channels. Links are in our program notes. I'm Adam Craig. Stay well and speak soon. Mm-hmm.